Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you this morning and we come recognizing that our anchor is indeed not in ourselves. And we ought to sigh at that and say, Amen. Because I know that as we come this morning to worship that there are countless just ways that even just seeing in my own heart and my own life and seeing how deficient, how absolutely unable I am to do anything to save myself. It is only Christ. Christ is our anchor. And so we cling to him as our anchor, and he will never be removed. And so we do glory in our Savior this morning. Not because we're sufficient, but because he is. And so we come with our hope and victory found in Christ and in Christ alone. And so may we come in light and in view of Christ this morning. Lord, may you be before our eyes as it may well be that we have been distracted this morning or we may have been thinking of other things or thinking about uh, today or thinking about this week or thinking about something else. May you help us, Lord, that our hearts and our minds and our whole selves would be completely yours this morning. And so we pray that in view of this victory that we have in Christ, may you work in us May you help us by your grace to abound in the work of the Lord. May you help us, O Lord, to know that our labor is not in vain. And may you help us, Lord, as the children here and the students here and the teachers here as they go into a new school year. May they abound in not in some secular work, not in some general work, but may they abound in the work of the Lord. May children go into school, whether it's public school or sitting at home with their mom. May they abound in the work of the Lord. May students go and abound in the work of the Lord. May teachers, may moms, may dads abound in the work of the Lord. And so we pray for this as we look out over a new school year as well. And we pray for us this morning that you would help us to grab hold of your word as we turn to it. We pray that though it will certainly this morning try us and it will challenge us, we pray right now that it would. <laughs> We pray that it would try us, that you may try us, that you may sanctify us. That you may help us to come even with that demeanor of David in Psalm 51, with a broken and contrite spirit you will not despise. And so help us to come with that heart this morning and may you indeed even save this morning. If there's someone here who does not know Christ, may they see that Christ is the Savior. And they need not search any longer because he's come. And so be with us now as we turn to your word, Lord.
Help us in all of these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to James, to the letter of James, and to James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. We'll be looking there this morning. Now, when you think of an especially grievous case in Scripture of temptation, you know, someone who gives in to temptation and even of the disastrous consequences that follow after that. What's one example, perhaps, that might come to your mind in Scripture? Now, I'm sure there are several instances, maybe, that come to your mind as you're thinking through it right now. Genesis to Revelation. But one that certainly fits this description is the downward spiral that we see of David with Bathsheba. And what a disaster it was, right? And I imagine that many of you, you probably know the story. You very likely have heard of it, whether here or somewhere else. And so while King David's army, they're going out to battle against the Ammonites... Someone stays behind. <laughs> and we know who that was. David does. Which, as you're reading 2 Samuel and you come across this, you immediately notice, well, this is kind of odd. That's not normally what David does. Nor is it even what normally kings do. <laughs> they don't normally stay behind. So you note that there is something strange about this going on immediately. And so while his army is off fighting, David, he gets up one afternoon and he takes a stroll along the roof of his house and he sees something. And what does he see? Well, he sees, yeah, Bathsheba and he sees her bathing. And as you know, the story really just unravels after that, doesn't it? Into one disaster after another. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. She became pregnant. And David, seeing all this, he has her husband killed. And in judgment, their child dies. And God he tells David that the sword will not depart from your house for the rest of your life. And it doesn't. A sad, terrible, downward spiral. But why did David do all of that? A man that we know of is a man of God's own heart. After God's own heart. Well, we could talk a long time about that, couldn't we? <laughs> we could talk at length about David and his sin there in 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 12. But this morning, James would have us consider two things here and now. 
One, the blessedness of steadfastness in the midst of testing, in the midst of trials, and the deadly downward spiral of sin. And so to see this, let's begin then reading here with verse 12 of chapter 1 of James. So may God help us and give us grace to face down trials and temptations, not in someone else's heart this morning, but in my heart, in your heart, in my life, and in your life here and now. So may God bless the reading of his word to be received by you. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now at this point, as we continue along in the letter of James... We are now well acquainted with this topic, aren't we? The topic of trials and the topic of testings. It has been the continual kind of constant drumbeat that we have heard over and over again with these opening verses. If you remember, he told us back in verse 2 to count it what? All joy or literally pure joy. When you meet trials of various kinds. And so he gave us there, I won't go through all that again, but he told us there and he gave us there a different view of trials. One that's different than perhaps everything else or everyone else that you're hearing from today. Well, He doesn't relinquish, nor does he even back away from that point for even a moment here. Instead, what he does is he expands upon it here in these verses even further. So James, what he wants to do very truly for you and for me this morning is he wants to spur you on. He wants to spur on your hope. He wants to spur on your faith. He wants to spur on your endurance. He wants genuine faith, not this kind of joking game, nodding of the hat sort of faith. He wants genuine faith to typify your life. He longs for that. He doesn't want this nominal Christianity. He doesn't even have a category for that. All he has is deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow Christ there as a Christian. And so he wants you to live for the Lord with all you are. And so that's what he's after here in these verses. And so it is then that we see first here in verse 12, the promised crown. The promised crown. Or as he says, the crown of life. So right off, 
when we say that we need this point. We need this point. So we, we need to italicize that or underline that or highlight that. Whatever we need to do, we need this point. So who is the we? Well, this promise, it's not just for anybody everywhere. It says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And so that is not talking about unbelievers. They are not blessed in this way. No, this, this word that we are being given today by God, it is a word only for believers. It's believers, those who know God by faith, through faith in Jesus Christ, who love God and they remain steadfast. And this is who he makes this promise to. And he says it right here. To those who love him. Love him. And so this is a promise of the gospel that those who know him, who endure trials, will be graced with the crown of life. It's a beatitude. <laughs> we read that last week. You're here from Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 13. Blessed are you. So believers are blessed because they will receive the crown of life. This crown of victory is what this is. Now, long ago, the Greeks, they had a race in their Olympic Games that was basically a torch relay. And the winner, they wouldn't win because they got to the finish line first. They won because they finished with their torch still lit. Well, James, he is saying here to you and I as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, he is crying and pleading with you, let your fire keep burning in the face of heat, in the midst of trials as you face the persistent fires of this life, let your fire for Christ, let your faith in Christ keep burning. Don't let it go out. He's exhorting you by the grace of God. Endure. By the grace of God, endure. Now, no, notice here he doesn't say that this is, he doesn't say this of those who don't face trials, right? Of those who don't endure trials. So he doesn't say, blessed is the man who coasts, who has it easy, <laughs> who knows no troubles. They never face a single hurt or pain or sorrow. You know, those who are living their best Life Now, he doesn't say those are the blessed ones. Why? Because trials and testings, they will be experienced by followers of Christ. And if you are not experiencing or you have not experienced trials in your life for following Christ, I have to ask you, what is going on? 
Because when Jesus says, take up your cross, he's not talking about a couch cushion. Right? Or do we really believe that or not? Or maybe Timothy, when he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so it's not an if, it's absolutely you will if you love Christ. And so do you love him this morning? Yet as we see this and as we hear these words, you're not to think at this point, by the grace of God, endure. You're not to think that you must endure on your own. This is not a works-based religion. That is not how you become a Christian. You don't inherit, inherit it from anybody. You don't inherit it from your mom. You don't inherit it from your dad or your grandparents. It's not because you're here like sitting in church by osmosis. You just become a Christian. That is not how it works. It is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and through Christ alone. So if you take this point and you're thinking, oh, i got to work really hard, i got to do something, i gotta, I got to really work hard, like go to church all the time, otherwise I might not make it. Well, that is not what James is urging us on to think. By grace through faith in Christ, and keep that before your eyes as he says, endure, don't give up. Keep before your eyes that first phrase. By the grace of God, endure. And there's no conflict in saying all this. It may seem like that at the first go, you know. He is saying, you need to press on. (laughs) He is doing that. He's saying, you press on, you labor, you endure. Yet, in all of that, Do all that by the grace of God. And this is what Paul says as well. And he says that in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Let me read it for you. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them the other apostles. <laughs> then what does he say? Did you see how good of a job I did? No. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So no conflict here. You're laboring with all your might by the grace of God. No conflict. So as you go through the fire, cling to Christ, all the while knowing it's all by the grace of God. God has you to the end if you know Christ. You know, once I, I read a conversation between you know, two young girls, and one was named Mary, and the other named Marjorie. Now, that was their name, so I know that's not common today. I mean, like, where's Mar? I mean, Marjorie. Okay, I never hear that name. No, that was her name. 
Well, as they're talking, these two little girls, Mary, she says to Marjorie, if you died, do you know, how do you know that you would be saved? Well, Marjorie, she answers without hesitation, because I'm holding on to Jesus with both of my hands. And so Mary, you know, she's ready for this. You know, she's like, ah, I know how to get you. And so she says, aha, well, well, let's suppose then Satan cuts off both your hands. What then, huh? Well, after a moment, Marjorie, she's thinking through all this, and she says, but Jesus is holding on to me with both his hands, and the devil can't cut off Jesus' hands. And this is true of you. This is true for you if you know Christ. He holds you fast as we so often sing. And yet we cling to the anchor as well. And you do that as he's holding you fast. You cling to him with all you are by faith by grace, wholeheartedly, passionately, until the very end. And as you do, as you endure, and as you labor, what do you say? You say, I worked hard, I labored with all my might, yet it was not I, but it was the grace of God that is with me. It was by His grace I clung to Him the whole time. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What is God who is at work in you to will and work for His good pleasure? So cling to Christ. Hear James's exhortation. Endure. Cling to Him with all you are. By the grace of God. No conflict depending on him with every breath, with every step, knowing that you can trust him every step of the way. Now in hearing all that, in verse 12, this next part might seem like James is going some other direction. <laughs> like he's just totally changing the tune here. Temptation and all this stuff. But he's not. He's warning us. And he's warning us here of a dangerous progression. A dangerous progression. We see this in verses 13 through 15. He wants your faith to be steadfast. He doesn't want plastic. He wants reinforced steel. He wants your faith to be built upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Not on you know, movies or video games or stories or money or whatever it is. He wants it to be upon Jesus. Yeah. And so he wants you and I to be prepared. Because in the midst of trials, you need to be ready for temptations. In the midst of trials, you need to be ready for temptations. So in the thick of that, 
of trials and testings. This is so often exactly what happens, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, this literally means here, let no one say when he is tested or tried, I am being tempted by God. Or let no one say when he, he faces trials, I am being tempted by God. Because in the midst of trials, we'll often be tempted the most. When we are persecuted, or when we're sick, or when we're facing financial difficulties or struggles, or even when you're perhaps strolling along on a rooftop. There comes temptation. And perhaps you're not expecting it. Well, James is saying, well, yeah. You better be ready. And you better expect it because it is going to come. And again, we see that James, he is deeply concerned with what you believe and with your theology. If you remember a number of weeks ago, our theology informs our spirituality. So, When you go through a trial, oftentimes what will be revealed is what you really believe about God, what you really believe about following Jesus, what you really love will be revealed. So then it makes complete sense that right in the thick of the fog of trials, then that James, he is unashamedly giving a theological clarification. And you're like, well, I don't like theology and all that stuff. Well, you absolutely need it. You need to know who God is. Do you know who God is? Do you know that he is holy and perfect and good and just in everything he does? He is sovereign. He is infinite. He is never lonely. Never, not once, any time in all of eternity. He does not need you. But he made you and he loves you. We need to know who our God is. Not because we've made him. Because he is God. And there is no other. And so the big question that James is answering is this. Is God to blame when you sin? Is God to blame when you sin? And his answer here is absolutely not. (laughs) No way is he to blame. And so he says here, with the next point, God tests but never tempts. God tests but never tempts. And so he's not saying that God doesn't test. So God does test, which may make this awfully complicated for us at this point. Wait, test, yes, tempt, no. And so we, we, we see that, though, again and again in Scripture that God, he does test. We even saw that with the opening verses here, or at least a few weeks ago. In verse 3, it says, You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Well, who is doing the testing? Well, God, He is testing us. He is growing us. He is sanctifying us 
in trials. That's part of why we look at trials and we count them pure joy. They're not meaningless. They're not chaos. God, you are at work in them. And I trust you. So God is doing all that. And even uses James, he uses similar language here in verse 12. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. So in all that though, may it never be that you or I or anyone would say that God is evil. That the temptation that I am facing right now or whenever it may come is from God. Or that God tempts anyone or God, how dare you? We would never say that. Because that's not true. You see that James, he is wrestling with all this because he has a high view of God, not a low view of God. It's because he knows that God is in control. Because he knows that God is sovereign over all things. That he is wrestling with this here. And so we ought to then be like, I'm coming right along with you then. Because I have a high view of God. I know he is sovereign. I know he is in control. I know all of this isn't chaos. This is his story. And his plans are coming about at every angle, even though I don't see it, understand it, and know how it's all coming together. And so because he has a high view of God, he's wrestling with this. Now, you could be thinking at all this, okay, well, big deal, (laughs) you know, That doesn't seem so hard to understand. Okay, I get it. I mean, yeah, I don't know how that fits together exactly, but it's what the Word of God says. I believe it. And I see it here. It's important that we see this now because it might be hard to understand later. Maybe you're agreeing with all this right now, and it may be hard to understand like when you're going through a trial. Like when perhaps a child that you dearly love, dies in a day when you did not expect it at all. Or you lose your job and you have nothing. You have nowhere to go. And you've got a family to provide for. You need to hear this right now. Well, I got it. I got it, Pastor. No, 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 you need to get this deep in your heart this morning and plant it there and be ready for when the trials come because this will come at you as well. Or maybe it might even come while you're reading your Bible. (laughs) While you're home reading your Bible and as you read, you come across Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. And what does it say there? Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Interesting, isn't it? The Spirit of God led him into the wilderness to do, to be what? Tempted by the devil. 
So you see what James is wrestling with here. He is setting before you an answer as you read your Bible, as you face trials. Or maybe as you heard the Lord's Prayer read a moment ago by Francie. Maybe you're thinking of those last words of the prayer. What did it say? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know that literally means, when Jesus says that there, it literally means, Father, don't carry us into temptation. A high view of God. And so James, he is giving an answer here in view of all these things. He's saying that God, he may indeed lead us into a trial or testing or even like Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Yet, he by no means tempts anyone. Period. James, he is not apologizing for God and his sovereignty. He is clarifying God and who he is and his sovereignty. He's making clear that all that God does, everything he does is right and good and perfect. God is absolutely blameless, period. No one can level a charge against God ever. Not in trial, temptation, anything. He is blameless. And so having that then firmly within our hearts and our minds then, it's with this clarification we're able to see clearly then the progression here. And it's not an upward progression. It's a downward spiral. Kind of like the one we saw with David and Bathsheba. And what does it begin with? It all begins with temptation. Temptation. So in the midst of a trial, you're facing whatever it may be, here it comes. Temptation. Something is set before you that entices you, and it doesn't just entice you, it deceives you. It lies to you. Maybe some image, it pops up on your phone, just a second, and there it is. Or you see something in a store or online, or maybe even in your neighbor's house, and you're tempted. And it could come at any time. Perhaps even while we've been in this service, you have been tempted already. And I would imagine, because we're talking about this, you probably have. Tempted to something. Anger. Lust. Bitterness. Pride. Mere religiosity. I'm none of these things. And so you could have been lied to already within this service. And so the first part is temptation comes. And then the second part of this progression is desire. Desire. And the two, they're close together, almost like, you know, so connected that at times you can't even 
like tell when the one stops and the one begins kind of thing. And so temptation and desire. And so verse 14, you see this here, but each person is tempted and he goes right, right into desire when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And so the reason that you give in to temptation, the reason that David gave in to temptation is not because of God. You can't point your finger at your spouse and say, it's because of you I did this. You can't point at your children and say, it's your fault I sinned that way. You can't point at your coworker and say, well, you're the one. You can't point at anyone else. You can't even point at the devil. The reason given here for why you sin is because of you. The reason you do it is because you want to. It's as simple as that and as terrible as that, isn't it? It's like, thank you for showing just how sinful my heart is again. Now, there's no mention of the devil here. Not because James doesn't talk about the devil. He does. He will. He talks about the devil in chapter, what, 5 or 4. Talks about demons in chapter 2. But he doesn't talk about it here because you and I maybe see very clearly that when you or I sin, the responsibility falls squarely at our own feet. Not the devil's, not your spouse, not your children, not anyone, you. And this is why he says you are lured and enticed by your own desire. And so the lure, if you like fishing, he's giving a fishing illustration. (laughs) The lure is sent out with the bait, and the fish, you, you're caught because you want the bait. You see the bait, and you go after it. And then you're dragged in. And this leads us to the third part of the progression. Action. Action. Verse 15. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And so you do it. You give in, you, you take it. That picture that popped up or that link, you click on it. You act. And that leads us then to this last part. Death. Now the birth of a baby is wonderful, isn't it? You, if you have children, you know that. <laughs> You're just amazed at this beautiful boy or girl that you now have in your hands, and you're like, what? You know, it's like, God, you're amazing. <laughs> and it's a wonderful to beho- behold a newborn child. It's a time of joy. Well, that's not what happens here. What is birthed here isn't something wonderful. 
it's something dreadful. As he says, sin gives birth to death. This could be talking about physical death, which our sin at times might lead to that. You might do something that will kill you. But he's definitely talking about spiritual death. And that might be surprising to you. That might be pretty shocking to read that. I mean, this progression, this downward spiral here. But James, he is setting all this before you because he intends for this to be a warning for you as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. If you press on in your sin, you're making clear that you are dead. Pressing on isn't what kills you, though, because if you know Christ, you will repent. You won't continue in your sin. What it will do is it will clarify where you are. You aren't alive. And really, you've never been alive. And this is what John, he says in 1 John as well in chapter 3, verse 4 through 6. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning and practices lawlessness, sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on Sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Is that shocking to you? Is that the way that many have set forth Christianity before you today? Now, John isn't saying you won't sin at all. If you remember in 1 John 1, he says, If anyone says he does not have sin, he is a liar. And he says... If you sin, confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So he's not saying you won't ever sin. But he's saying if you are continually living in sin, you have no confidence to say that you know Jesus Christ. And that's a bit scary. But it should be helpful. Why does he say all that? And why does James say all this? And why does John say all that? Because believers repent. They will repent. Like David did after he sinned with Bathsheba. The consequences were all there. He had to live with them for the rest of his his life. And you might too with your sin. But he repented before God. And he said in Psalm 51, I have sinned against you and you alone, O God. And he repented. While on the other hand, unbelievers don't. At least, they don't truly. You know, we see this progression as well in another place. This progression of death And it matters to you right now. It actually is why you're going to die one day as well. 
in Genesis 3, isn't it? We see this exactly is what happened. Eve was tempted and deceived. Step one, did God say, really say, you will not surely die? Then step two, so there was temptation and desire. Chapter three, verse six, she saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. There it is. Temptation, desire. Step three, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Action. And what was the result? Death. Death for you. Death for me. Death for every single one of us. So as you're hearing all this in these perhaps rather dark words where James, he is taking us down into the depths of our hearts and he is showing us some things that maybe we don't like to think about and we don't like to see. We need to see it. But as you see it, you might be asking, where, where do I go then? You know, where is my hope with a heart like that? You know? Well, friends, your hope is not found in your sin, but it's found in Christ. Amen. It's found in Christ. Amen. It may be that you are here and you are hearing all of this and you're saying, you know what, I, I think perhaps with tears in your heart and you're seeing this, you're saying, I think I might actually be dead. I don't know God. I thought I did, but based on what you're saying here, I don't. You might be seeing and saying that this morning that you're finding that you are dead and your trespasses and sins against the living God, as Ephesians 2, 1 says. And so what are you to do? Well, you need to see that God, he made a way for you this morning. And it is not centered around you. It's not centered around what you can do. It is centered around His grace. Jesus came and did what you could never do and was what you could never be. He was the sinless, perfect Savior. And He came as the God-man to save you. And if you are here and you're seeing that you are dead this morning, your response to me needs to be a cry and a cry for grace to the living God. Through faith in Christ. And so this is not giving you something to do this morning. It is saying you need to run to Christ. You need grace this morning. You need the grace of God found in Christ this morning. And so if that's you, may you respond. Even now, don't wait to the end of the sermon. If you know what you need to do, do it. (laughs) Cry out to Christ. Cry out to God. Forgive me. Woe to me. I am a sinner. Have mercy. 
and everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. God is not a liar. He's not playing with you, and he will answer. Now, if you know him this morning, maybe you're left with some, something of a similar question, like, what about me? <laughs> you know, I still sin. Well, love God more than sin. Love God more than sin. You need to remember verse 12 which God has promised to those who love him. Love God, which really this is what it's about, isn't it? Isn't it your desire? You're wanting something, and you're having a, a kind of a, a battle over what you love ultimately. Do I love sex ultimately? Do I love money ultimately? Do I love power or whatever it is? Well, your, your love for God is to rise higher in that moment. It is to be before your eyes as this temptation comes and you say, you say, no, no, no. I love you, God, more than that. I love you, God, more than myself. I love you, God, more than my life. I love you, God, more than whatever it is that is enticing me right now. Right as Jesus said in John 12, 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And you're doing that every day. My life belongs to you, not that. Not that sin. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And he says that because that's true. A believer does not love sin. A believer does not love sin. You know, as I heard one of my favorite preachers say, Herschel York, if you're a believer, you won't be content in your sin. What will you be? Miserable. <laughs> You'll be miserable. Why? Because you have the Spirit of God in you. You can't go on loving that with God inside of you. So believers will not love sin. So what about when you do give in? So what you need to do is turn your eyes upon Jesus. Amen. You need to turn away from your sin, turning your eyes upon Jesus, and you need to kill it. You need to kill it. And that's not an overstatement. That's why we have statements like Jesus say, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Like, get rid of it. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And he's not saying do that, like literally. But he's saying you need to 
You need to be all out against your sin. Strategize against it. You need to fight against it. You, you work and you labor in your job. You plan. You make Excel spreadsheets. You do whatever you do. Well, do you do that in attacking your sin? Do you take it that seriously? I'm not going to put up with this in my life because Christ is my life. He is my victory. I'm no longer a slave to sin and death. I am a slave to Christ and his righteousness. And so you strategize. As Paul, he says in Romans, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die exactly what we've been seeing here. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's what you're to do. How? By the grace of God. By faith. Be in the Word. I heard someone say, when they come to the Word, you know, either... Uh, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book, which is right. If you haven't been reading the Word, something might well be keeping you from it. So be in the Word. By grace, by faith, you're not like, I've got to do this to earn anything. Be in prayer. Be part of the body of Christ. You are not called to exist apart from this body. And if you are, you are sinning. Do not forsake the gathering of believers. Be fixing your eyes on the gospel that when you sin, and the devil, he says all this stuff, you say, well, yeah, I am a sinner, but Christ is my Savior. And you tell him that. And when you sin, confess it. Strategize war against it. And set your eyes, your greater affection upon Christ your Lord. And so see the lie. Believe the truth. And be captivated by it. Be captivated by Christ. So maybe you're hearing these words today and your heart has sunk We'll hear it not as the word of men, but as the word of the Lord today. And face down the trials and the temptations in your life and in your heart. And don't give up nor give in, but by the grace of God, remain steadfast. Put your sin to death and cling to your Savior. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we, we remember the words we began our service with. A broken heart, a broken spirit, you will not despise. And so we may we come with hearts of brokenness this morning and respond in the way that you have shown us this morning.
May we see these things and not let them go unheeded. But may we take them up for ourselves. It, that may mean we need to do exactly as we said a moment ago and cry out to Christ to save us. Lord, save me. May that be the response. Or may it be that we would take our sin or some sin that we have loved, may we cast it out, cut it off, and put it to death. And may our affection and our love for Christ be highest and above all. And may we be captivated with our Lord again and above all. Help us, Lord, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.